Revelation 22, verses 6 to 21. And he said to me, These words are trustworthy and true. And the Lord, the God of the spirits of the prophets, has sent his angel to show his servants what must soon take place. And behold, I am coming soon. Blessed is the one who keeps the words of the prophecy of this book. I, John, am the one who heard and saw these things. And when I heard and saw them, I fell down to worship at the feet of the angel who showed them to me. But he said to me, You must not do that. I am a fellow servant with you and your brothers, the prophets, and with those who keep the words of this book. Worship God. And he said to me, Do not seal up the words of the prophecy of this book, for the time is near. Let the evildoer still do evil, and the filthy still be filthy, and the righteous still do right, and the holy still be holy. Behold, I am coming soon, bringing my recompense with me, to repay each one for what he has done. I am the Alpha and the Omega, the first and the last, the beginning and the end. Blessed are those who wash their robes so that they may have the right to the tree of life and that they may enter the city by the gates. Outside are the dogs and sorcerers and the sexually immoral and murderers and idolaters and everyone who loves and practices falsehood. I, Jesus, have sent my angel to testify to you about these things for the churches. I am the root and the descendant of David, the bright morning star. The Spirit and the bride say, Come. And let the one who hears say, Come. And let the one who is thirsty come. Let the one who desires to take the water of life without price. I warn everyone who hears the words of the prophecy of this book, if anyone adds to them, God will add to him the plagues described in this book. And if anyone takes away from the words of, this, of the book of this prophecy, God will take away his share in the tree of life and in the holy city which are described in this book. He who testifies to these things, things says, Surely I am coming soon. Amen. Come, Lord Jesus. The grace of the Lord Jesus be with all. Amen. Wow. So we've come to an end, not just of Revelation, but of all Scripture. For the history of the church, since we had the canon of Scripture, Revelation has been the bookend with, Revelation, with Genesis. And so we have to remember, we're coming to the end of not just the book, but of all Scripture. This is the last chapter, the last thing the last words that God wants us to really understand, really hold on to and hang on to. And all of the takeaways that come that you're going to see are replayed in this chapter that remind us of what the entire book and scripture is about, they mean nothing unless the words are true. If it isn't the word of God, then go watch football on a Sunday. Right? If it isn't the word of God, we should, we, there's better things to do. In fact, if this isn't the word of God, there's nothing better or worse to do. Just go out and wait till you die. Very, very pleasant. But if it's the word of God, then we should take heed. And it's interesting that in his last chapter, God goes out of his way to emphasize that his words are true. I think the one thing we need to recall, and all the points we're going to cover in a minute, is if the Bible is true, it should be trusted and obeyed. Simple. So the question often isn't, well, I don't like what it says about gender. I don't like what it says about money. I don't like what it says about election. Listen, if it's God's word... It's not your job to like it. It's to obey it. Now, it sounds harsh, isn't it? But God is God and we are not. And we wrestle with the word to come to terms with it. And when, it's interesting. Look at what he says before we jump into the meat of the sermon. Who is it that the Bible speaks about and who wrote it? Whose word is the Bible? It's the word of God, obviously. Right? We know that much. You'll hear no heresy from me here. But look at what he says. First, 
God shows up and says, these words are trustworthy and true because he has sent his angel. It's verse 6. So God himself says, I send my angel. This word is from God. Then, in verse 16, Jesus says, I, Jesus, sent an angel to tell you what this, what, what this message is. So hold on. Now we've got God telling us this is his word. Jesus comes and says it's his word. But then after hearing all these words, the Spirit comes and says, Amen. Which means this word is the testimony of the triune God. All of God is saying this is true. This is the word of God. But look at even more remarkable. In verse 8, John pops in. I, John, am the one who heard and saw these things. Now we see deep theological teaching on what Scripture is. Scripture is all at once God's self-disclosure of himself to us and our affirmation of who God is. It's man writing and saying, yes, this is who God says he is. God says in the Bible, this is who I am, and man who writes it says, we agree. This is who we know you to be after living and experiencing you. And this is where we find this beauty in Scripture, the dual, it's the testimony of God and man to God's character. It's the Word of God, infallible. Don't, not, nothing there. Nothing heretical here. However, when it's written through Paul, Paul doesn't go into a trance, right? And just like, he's got automatic writing. His hand just, he just transcribes what he hears in his head. It's not the way Scripture is written. Historically, the church has said, no, it's God superintending it. God working through the intellect, the context, the vocabulary, the experiences of Paul, John, Luke, whoever else, Isaiah. And so as a result, we find the beauty of the word is God saying, this is who I am. And then man saying, yep, that's who he is. And because he goes out of his way to say this, he's saying, trust it. It's not just my own testimony of who I am, though that would be enough because he's God. He's saying, this is who my people know me to be. And if that's the case, what does he want us to trust? Why is he so anxious for us to believe and to trust his word? Well, these final words are essentially the words of all scripture. It's that Jesus is Lord. Thank you, Esther, earlier. Jesus is Lord. He is coming. And it makes a big difference. Those are the three things we're going to talk about. And I'm going to try to walk through. I've heard people say, hey, if you could put the points up, I could follow. So I'm going to try to help you. Because I know I go quick sometimes. So let's begin with the first thing. The first point Revelation wants us to know is he is Lord. So it's not by accident that the 22nd chapter of Revelation sounds a lot like the first chapter of Revelation. In fact, it should be even less of a surprise for you to know that seven things are repeated from the first chapter to the 22nd chapter. And those things, I'll put them on the board. We're not going to spend a lot of time on them, but just so you see them, if you can read that. The first thing is, right away, we are told, in both chapters, it says that the, um, this message has come, it contains this, this phrase, to show the servants what must soon take place. That phrase shows up in both chapters. And also, in both chapters, John is personally identified by name as somebody who heard and saw these things. Then, both, set, both chapters contain the phrase, the time is near. They both contain this, this phrase of, behold, I or he is coming soon. They both contain the claim of, I am the Alpha and the Omega. They both have an angel being sent from God, from Jesus, to give the message. Um, they both say, and lastly here, they both say, blessed are those who keep what is written in the prophecy of this word, and so on. And so, it begins by telling you, remember the first chapter we went through it? What was the, if you were, I know you don't remember, that's okay. I said the driving image that we're supposed to keep in our mind for the whole book and all of our Christian life is that image of, that John sees of Jesus that looks kind of bizarre. White hair, flaming eyes, bronze feet. And 
what we're being told is Christ is Lord, right at the outset. And you have to keep that in mind, because if you don't believe he is Lord, it's going to be hard to stomach life and what you're about to read in Revelation. And at the very end, you're being told Christ is Lord. And so it's not by accident. We must remember that he is Lord. And I'm going to first explain how it shows that, and then I'm going to tell you why it's practical. Because if I'm not careful, people are under the impression that because we speak here with a lot of deep, we go deeply into the text here at Redeemer. Some people will think, oh no, but it's a lot of theology, but not a lot of practical. I'm sorry. There's nothing more practical than theology. Nothing. Now, sometimes we have to, we have to get there, and we're going to do that. But please understand, as we walk through, and when we hear repeatedly that Christ is Lord, that's a very practical assertion. But let's walk in. Let's show, first show how it shows that. Now, first thing, there's four things we'll go through quick. When Jesus refers to himself as the Alpha and the Omega, the first, the last, the beginning and the end, it seems like, hey, we've heard that before. Sort of. But if you go back to chapter 1, you're going to notice Jesus doesn't say that about himself. God says that about himself, the Father. So when Christ then shows up and says, I am the Alpha and the Omega, do you see what's happening? He's saying, he is Lord. I mean, we should have known that, because he's also sitting on the throne, in the midst of the throne. We've seen that all through the book. But at the end, he doesn't just say, I am the Alpha and Omega. He doesn't just say, I am the beginning and the end. He says, I'm all of it. The beginning, the end. The beginning and the end are the protos and the eschatos. When Paul says he is the chief of sinners, he is the protos of sinners. He's the first of them, the, the greatest of them, he thinks. Jesus says, I am the greatest of all. I'm the greatest, the first man. And then he's also the last, meaning no one outlasts him. But he's also the archie and the telos, right? This is the, the um, uh, where, 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 I'll just walk right past it. Um, oh, that's the first and last, in the beginning and the end. And I've said it to you before, I'll reiterate just a little. When he says he's the archie, it means he is the Henry Ford to your Model T. He didn't just knit you up, he designed you. He knows what you're for. He knows how you'll be happy and how you won't be. But he's also the telos, your destiny, meaning everyone will stand before him. doesn't matter how much you kick and scream in this world, you're going to stand before God. Everything is destined to be in him. And so it's an incredible assertion of his lordship. Move again to the next one. He then says he is the root and descendant of David, the bright morning star. Now, when he says he is the descendant of David, the root, that's Revelation 5.5. Behold, the lion of the tribe of Judah, the root of David, has triumphed, and he can open the scroll. So he's saying, I'm the Messiah. I'm the one you've been waiting for. And when he says he's the morning star, you may remember back in chapter 2, verse 28, he says to the, the church in the, uh, Theatira, he says, I, am the bright, I will give you the bright morning star. Now, if you remember, I'm going to give you very quick. The bright morning star, what he's referring to is at around 3 o'clock at night, when it gets its absolute darkest, a certain light pops up in the sky called the morning star. And that star only shows up when it's darkest. But the moment it shows up, it means the death of night. Because it's never going to get any darker than that moment. You may still have four or five hours of darkness, but light is coming because behind the morning star, he drags the dawn. And if Christ says, I am the bright morning star, he is saying, friends, the world might be hard for you for a few hours, but it can't be any darker. Here's very practical. When you're a Christian, you may have dark days as a Christian. It may be hard. Suffering, pain, it won't go away just because you believe. However, it will never feel as dark as it did if you didn't have Christ. Never. Yes, you may suffer, but because you have the bright and morning star, you don't have to suffer without hope. We'll get to more practice. So he is saying, I am the Messiah. I am the one who ushers in the dawn. He's Lord. He then says, I'm bringing my recompense with me. His payment is mistos in Greek. 
to repay each one. So he is the judge. He is Lord. He's the one who determines good, bad, and all, and so on and so forth. Lastly, it's a little more cryptic, but you'll see it's beautiful. He says, I, Jesus, have sent my angel to testify to you about these things. In verse 6, God says he sent his angel. So again, Jesus is saying, no, no, I am him. I sent my angel. So Jesus is refer- continually saying, God and I, we are one. Christ is Lord. And when you say, okay, so how, what's the practical aspect of this? this is, it's very so practical. And it's, it's going to sound, I don't want to sound harsh, it's not. But every time you and I are angry, afraid, anxious, it's because you have forgotten he is Lord. Let me explain that practicality. So if I'm angry at something that my children have done, the reason I am angry and I give vent to that anger is because in that moment I believe that I should obey that anger. I believe I should obey that thing in me that says, defend this with your loud voice and with your body and whatever you have to do, defend it. And so my anger is me succumbing to that Lord of anger. And for that moment, I have forgotten Christ is Lord, not my anger, not whatever I'm defending, not my, my schedule, not my good opinion, not my reputation. When I'm anxious about something, what I'm saying when I'm anxious is I'm not so sure I can trust that God has my health or my finances or my kids or my grandkids under control or the politics or anything. I don't know if he has it under control. I don't know if he's Lord of it. So I need to add my worry to it. I've got to worry about this because I'm not so sure he's worrying enough. So anxiety is a lack of understanding God's lordship. We could say the same thing about fear. Something is terrifying. Whatever, pick anything, anything. We all have things that scare us, not just the, you know, spiders, but something real. And the moment we give in to fear, what we're saying is, I am not so sure that it's going to be okay because I don't know if he's lord or not because this thing looks like it's got lordship over me, cancer. Finances, pick a thing. And so, when we speak about God, Christ being Lord, and Revelation says He is Lord, He is Lord, He is Lord, you understand there's nothing more practical a preacher can tell you on a Sunday than to every week tell you He's Lord, because every week you forget it and so do I. And so we have to always remember He is Lord, He is Lord, He is Lord. And then it's no wonder when John worships this angel, he says, get up, get up, worship God. Proskuneo Theos, he says in Greek. Two words, very simple. Fall down in front of God, not in front of me. Proskuneo is prostrate. And so, when you know that Christ is Lord in every aspect of your life, your hardships, your work, your family, your community, whatever you do in life, your finances, all of it, your job is to lay down before God and say, you are Lord of this. You're Lord of my workplace, Lord of my money, Lord of my time. How do I worship you with it? And that is what we do if we acknowledge he is Lord. When we don't do it in an area, if I say, I'm going to spend my money as I please, you are Lord of your money. I get it. I'm not condemning. We're all there. But this is what it means that he is Lord. We all want him as Savior, but we don't always love him as Lord. But he's Lord. There's nothing clearer. How many times have I said it already? He's Lord. And we're going to forget tomorrow, trust me. I'll be on the road to PEI tomorrow, and I assure you, I'm going to forget it when I'm tailgating somebody who's going really slow. Maybe you. <laughs> Sunday drivers. No, I'm joking. So, he is Lord. So, second point. If he is Lord, the second thing we're told uh, consistently is that he is coming, and coming soon. In fact, in these short few verses we read, on five different occasions he refers to him saying, first, I am coming soon. He says three times. He says, "What this, this stuff must too soon take place once, and then the time is near once. 
So on five occasions, he reiterates, he's coming soon. Now, we have a problem, though, because it's been 2,000 years. So much for soon, right? Is that, that's what we think. And we under, I, I get that. And I even sympathize with it. And I think God does too, which is why on a number of places in Scripture, he addresses this. But his, his seeming lack of, of response or fidelity to this claim that he is coming soon. The earliest one, well, maybe not the earliest, but one of them is, is in Habakkuk. The prophet Habakkuk is a guy who lived at the end of the 7th century. And if you don't know your history, I'll give you the quick history lesson. He is living in Israel under a time when Assyria has dominated it, the Assyrians, Nineveh. And he is near the tail end of Assyrian control. And soon Babylon is going to come from within the Assyrian Empire and oust the Assyrians and then dominate Israel in about 30 years or so after Habakkuk. And Habakkuk hears that God is going to deal with Assyria by sending Babylon. And Habakkuk has a problem with that. In fact, the whole book is him asking questions and challenging God, saying, what are you going to, why would you try to get rid of a terrible people like Assyria with another terrible people like Babylon? Come on. Why are you using a wicked people to get rid of another wicked people? And God's response is to say, listen, I have a plan and you don't know it. And here is what he says in chapter 2. And the Lord answered me, write the vision, make it plain on tablets so he may run who reads it. For still the vision awaits its appointed time. It hastens to the end. It will not lie. If it seems slow, wait for it. It will surely come. It will not delay. Behold, his soul is puffed up. It is not upright within him. But the righteous shall live by faith. Now, I know the King James says it more beautifully when it says, though it linger, or though it tarry, wait for it, right? Tarry, it's a great word, but we don't use it much anymore. But you see what God is saying. He is saying, first and foremost, and we need to understand this, God does not share your impatience. See, my life is, is finite. I have X amount of years. The average Canadian male is going to live to, what, 78? Ladies, a couple of your glorious years afterwards. Three of us. And, that was a joke. A miserable time. You'll all wear black. It'll be horrible without us. But, in, <laughs> because my time is like this, I need to see justice now. I don't want you to, if, if I'm a person who's part of a visible minority, what I don't want is to be told, don't worry, your great-grandkids, they'll be free. It's like, man, I want it now. I want my justice here and now. And we're limited, and God shows up continually in Scripture, all Old and the New Testament. And he comes and says, I'm, I appreciate it, I know, I get it, but I'm not bound by your impatience. Because I see that the right time is more important than your time. Anybody who's been, I've not been pregnant, but I've seen pregnant people. And I assure you, near the end, don't, I, every, I'm, I'm going to take, I'm going to say this, I'm going to take a bet. I'm going to bet every woman at some point has said, I just want this baby out. At some point, you've probably said that. And I get it. Well, okay, no, I don't get it. But, but you see, the baby has a different opinion and says, I'll come out when it's time to come out. And you, any right-thinking mother, of course, would say, okay, fine, I'll patiently bear it. Because the babies, it'll come when it comes. He'll come, she'll come when it comes. And that is the same thing God is saying. I've got a timeline. Your job is to patiently trust me. Trust that I know what I'm doing and that my timeline is right. And then the righteous, he says, will live by faith. And we're going to talk more about this at the last point, but we're not told to be passive as we patiently wait. It's an, we're not Jonah, right? Remember Jonah? He's waiting to see Nineveh crushed, Assyria. So he sits on a hill and just waits. When's it coming? That's not what we're being asked to do. 
We're told to be actively waiting because the righteous will live by faith, not sit by faith. There's an activity in the word, and we're going to cover that in a minute. So Jesus is coming. He's coming quickly and soon, he says, which keeps us always perpetually on our toes. Every generation has thought it was at the end. Every single year, that every time our calendar has gone from 99 to the new, to the new century, listen, the church has gone crazy. Take my word for it. Every century. And is that a bad thing? Maybe not. Maybe it's part of us saying, we have to be ready. We have to be ready. So, this leads us down to very practical points. If he is Lord and he is coming, what difference does it make for us? And the text itself tells me it's the most practical passage around. Here's what it says. So this is part three now, moving into the question. The third part, which is, what difference does this all make? First, it makes a difference, and it's all P's. It's very pastoral. Um, first one is priorities. If Christ is coming tomorrow, your priorities ought to be different, and so should mine. Right? I mean, if you knew somebody's coming over to your house right after church, how would that change how quickly you left here to go clean up? Pretty quickly for some of you, right? Or, or to get food ready, or to do whatever because you want to be a host. You see, if you believe he is coming, then you should live like he is coming. And there's no judgment here. Well, there's a little judgment, not for me as much, but I get it. But if I was to go to you and say, I have the spirit of Michael Jordan in me, and then you took me out to the basketball court and I was dropping air balls everywhere. I couldn't hit a basket. You would say, he doesn't have the spirit of Michael Jordan in him. He has, or, the Michael, or Michael Jordan doesn't exist at all. But one way or the other, that's not him. And so you and I, our priorities, how we think, what we do with our time, how we read, the conversations we have, ought to be reordered based on the truth that he is Lord and he is coming. Simple. Second thing, peace. He's promised peace to those who obey the words of Revelation and of Scripture. It's interesting that, surprise, surprise, in Revelation, there are seven Beatitudes. On seven occasions, he said, John writes, blessed are whatever, the. Two of them happen here in this chapter. Now, one day I'll preach Psalm 1 and we'll get to this, but when he says blessed are, he's making a radical claim because blessed is the word makarios in Greek, which means happiness. He's saying happy are those who obey. First, let's deal with this peace part, the happy. The fact that the Bible says you and I can be happy is radically countercultural. There's an article in the Daily Mail uh, many moons ago by a guy named John, I think it's Nash, has an I there, but it might be Nash, I've never heard his name pronounced. And it's, a, it's an article called The Happiness Myth. Here's what he writes. It seems there are no end of experts on hand to tell us what we need to do to be happy. We're promised that if we work hard at our own state of mind, we can easily develop far more joy and self-esteem. It's almost as though we must have a duty to be happy in today's highly developed Western world. Most certainly, far too many people believe they are not complete if they are, not, uh, are somehow not fulfilled or joyful enough. But here's the rub. A human being will never, ever be completely happy, or always happy. No matter how hard you try to boost your happiness, ultimately, you are destined to fail. The human imperative that drives us to improve ourselves financially, physically, and socially means that inherently we all feel a sense of mild dissatisfaction, and we all walk around feeling the way, that way, uh, that, sorry, that we want something more. Now, Nash is right, but wrong. He's right in the sense that we walk around trying to be happy. The, where he misses the mark is he thinks it's impossible to be happy. And the world does, right? The world thinks we can't be happy. Scripture 
continually says blessed are, meaning happy are. And it's not talking about this fun, you know, it's going to be a fun time in, in, in Cancun or fun time at university. No, it's happiness, an abiding happiness. So the very fact that he says there can be peace is important because he is saying that happiness is possible, that we can be content in everything and have peace in every situation. But this then moves us into the third P, which is practice. Because he says the only way to be happy is happy, blessed is the one who keeps the words of the prophecy of this book. Happiness apart from obedience is impossible. It's harsh, isn't it? But it's true. Happiness apart from obeying Christ just doesn't happen. Not lasting, abiding happiness. Not the happiness that gets us through the dark times. And um, there's this uh, Old Testament scholar, this will be the last quote I have here, Old Testament scholar named Kenneth, um, Kenneth Barker. He's passed away. But he wrote a commentary on Habakkuk, on that passage I just read from the prophet. And here's what he says. The righteous are those courageous enough to accept God's words, word of promise in a world dominated by the horrors of Babylonian power described in the preceding verses. To look for salvation in a world dominated by persecution requires faithfulness. World history may not indicate it, but God is leading his world to accomplish his purposes. The righteous are also those who live, whose lives correspond to God's leadership. The righteous are not perfect, but they do live according to their relationship with God. Habakkuk was not to wait with folded hands and bated breath for all this to happen. He was to live a life of faithfulness. So we are expected not to look at the sky, but to live on mission. We're, see, but why don't people? Why is it that I'm still... Why do I have a job still? Why do I have a job? It's because... People don't live this way, including myself. And what is the primary thing in my whole 12 years of whatever, 12-something years of being a pastor? We could add many more to that. Here's what I know. You and I often don't obey because we're not so sure we'll be happy if we do. People tell me, listen, I understand the theory of being nice and being good and being generous. But if I give my money the way the Bible tells me, I won't have enough. If I share my house in hospitality with the stranger and the person in need, I will lose my privacy in my, the me time that I need. And we go on. If I trust him for my safety and I move into a rotten part of town to help restore it, I can't trust him for that. Like, I can't. If I obey him, I won't be happy. That's the problem. Continually we say, if we obey, we won't be happy. Because we don't believe there is peace in obedience. And I understand. I do but we're wrong. We're wrong. All through Scripture, it tells us continually. And this is what, because again, if he is the archi, if he is the one who created you, he literally knows what will make you happiest. And you are saying, no, I don't, I'm not so sure I trust him. Imagine a, a, a toy that takes batteries saying, don't give me the batteries. Don't give me the batteries. Well, I'm sure, I'll tell you, they're going to help you. No, 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 I'm not so sure. But I made you. I know it's the only way. No, no. I, I think I know me better. I can find out who I am without you. It's ridiculous. And that's kind of ridiculous for us, but I understand it. Sin does keep us from obeying Him. But that's what we're called to do. Practice. Lastly, well, there's more, because protection, I could add a fifth one, but I'm not going to. Prayer. Prayer is central, and we're trying to do more of it here. You ought to be doing more of it, and here's why. Do you notice in this passage, the Spirit and the Bride come together, it says. The Spirit and the Bride come and say, Come. Meaning, the Holy Spirit's constant prayer is, Come, Lord Jesus. The prayer of the church ought to be, Come, 
Lord Jesus. In fact, that's the Lord's prayer. Your kingdom come on earth as it is in heaven. What do you think you're praying for? You're praying for him to invade this earth and to take it over. And that ought to be the constant prayer. I was talking to people before the service. Listen, life is not easy. And the older you get, the worse it seems to get. Because your body breaks down, right? Your body breaks down. You're aching when you shouldn't. You've got this diagnosis and that diagnosis. Life is not easy. And so, anyone who, I'm an Old Testament, or a systematic theology prophet, Tyndale once said to me, um, if you don't pray every day for Christ to come, you have no idea how bad this, this world is and how sinful it is. And we pray. But again, why don't we pray, come, Lord Jesus? Why isn't that central to everything we say? I think there's a few different few reasons. Um, first, well, the reason we should pray is simple. We pray because everything sad is coming untrue. When he comes back, we know that all the things that we're working for but unable to do, the healing and restoration of the world and of each other, isn't going to happen unless he comes back. So we pray. But the reason I find people sometimes don't, and I don't at least, is, listen, I haven't had a vacation in a lot of years. In fact, when we drove here from Calgary, that's probably as close to vacation as I've had in a lot of time. I love my work. I'm looking forward to not being here for a week. What if Christ, but am I looking forward, am I saying, come Lord Jesus, but give me a week in PEI? Come Lord Jesus, but let me see my grandkids grow? Come Lord Jesus, but not until I've gotten married, I'm a young person, I need my career? I understand those impulses, but do we want him to return more than we want anything? Anything. I don't think I don't all the time. I don't think most people do. And the ones who do pray this way, however, are the ones who actually know the effects of sin. Those who pray for the return are the ones who know what it is to thirst. Those are the ones who see how sin affects their family. If you have a child who's been taken by an addiction, you want Christ to return. If you see a family member being withered away by some disease, you want Christ to return. If you've suffered injustice, if you've not had work, if you've been marginalized in any way, if you've been mocked, if you've been abandoned by parents, you know something of what it is to thirst, and so you pray for his return. But do we know that thirst? Less and less of us in Canada know it, not as deeply, because we live in a pretty good country. But on the cross, what we know is Christ, one of the last things he said in the Gospel of John 19 28, I think it is, he says, I thirst. Now, it's not just that he wanted water but that on the cross, he felt that desire for relief, the desire for justice, the desire for restoration, the desire for peace, healing, joy. He desired it so much, and what was he given? Bitterness. He drank bitterness on the cross so that when you and I cry out in thirst, we get water. And when we recognize that this is the theme of all of Revelation, it's not, it's not rocket science. He is Lord. He is your only hope if he is Lord. And he is coming. And we ought to not wait just impatient. We wait patiently for him as best we can. And we're actively seeking to bring him even closer by our prayer. Because we see in Revelation that he seems to answer the prayers of the saints. And so we're constantly to be calling out, Come, 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 Lord Jesus. But that is the cry of all Scripture. Christ is Lord. He is coming and it makes a big difference in our lives. If you're a Christian, wrestle with that truth. If you're not a Christian, my goodness, he's Lord. He is coming. Run to him. Run to the only one who will satisfy that thirst. There's nothing else. Nothing else. We try to satisfy that thirst with so many things. There's a reason 
Let's take the heed of our celebrities, from Freddie Mercury to Solomon to Madonna, have all said the same thing. I've had it all, and I'm still unsatisfied. If you have a thirst that nothing satisfies in this world, it may mean, as Lewis says, that you were made for something other than this world. And there's a God who will satisfy it. It's only the one who thirsted on your behalf, Christ alone. Let's pray.